Okay, these are my disclosures. I think the questions actually relate to Bob Baldazano's talk, so I have to wait longer for the answer to those. Um, so thank you very much to the organizers for this invitation to talk about 2018, a year in review of what has been published in pediatric IBD. So I'm going to try to highlight some of what I think have been the highlights, and I will say that this is a personal view of what has been important for pediatric IBD. So the first paper I'm going to talk about stands, oh yes, why did I choose these? So I chose the papers because I thought they impact treatment of pediatric IBD, either now or in the near future. And I did focus on pediatric studies, although we also have to consider these in the light of relevant adult data. So the first paper I've chosen is unique from the others, and I'll explain why I chose it. We know that in any complex disorder where both genes and environment influence pathogenesis, the younger a patient is when the disorder develops, the greater the contribution of genetics. And so there's been a lot of interest in IBD in the young trying to separate out who indeed has complex IBD and who might have a monogenic disorder. And this is a recent paper from the European Genius Group, which stands for Genetic and or Immunologic Disorders. And what they did was they took 205 children, all but 20% of them were under six years, so they fit the general but arbitrary definition of very early onset IBD, but that wasn't all. They also had severe disease. And these patients fit into three categories. There were some that had predominantly small intestinal disease, and these were really patients with an enteropathy, an IPEX-like syndrome. And then the others either had colitis only or colitis with perianal disease. And over the years of this study, these patients had been studied in a number of ways. Some had had functional testing first, and that alone was enough to allow the investigators to decide to study specific genes. Others had been subjected to whole exome sequencing, and then most recently, others had undergone targeted next-generation sequencing using essentially a panel of genes now known to be related to very early onset severe IBD. And the likelihood of finding a monogenic cause in this group of patients who again were quite severe phenotypes, was 32% overall, but really strongly influenced by the group that had the enteropathy type of presentation. In those with colitis only, it was 18%, and in those with colitis and perianal, it was 38%. But so the majority of people developing IBD, even below six, 
do not have a monogenic cause. And yet there are some who develop IBD later who will have a monogenic cause. And so what this study is pointing the way to, I think, is in the future the use of a panel to diagnose monogenic disorders in extreme phenotypes so that we can then treat them differently than the much more common complex IBD, which is increasing in prevalence in many parts of the world. So that's all the only paper I have picked related to monogenic IBD. The remainder of the talk will relate to aspects of complex IBD and papers which are impacting our therapy now. And what I think is a very important study is the PROTECT study. The early outcomes from this study were published about a year ago at the very end of 2017. And the one-year outcomes, the most important outcomes, were accepted for publication in The Lancet about two months ago, but don't seem quite yet to be online, but I'm sure it's very soon. For those of you who are not familiar with the PROTECT study, what this study has done is taken children and adolescents with new onset ulcerative colitis at participating sites in the United States and Canada. Their initial treatment is governed by the degree of activity of their colitis at presentation as measured by the Pediatric Ulcerative Colitis Activity Index with some ability of the investigator to use his or own, own discretion. And then those with mild disease are treated with 5-ASA, those with moderate disease with oral steroids, and with severe disease, intravenous steroids in hospital. Once the children treated with steroids respond, they then go on to maintenance therapy with 5-ASA, even if their disease was severe at the beginning, as long as their response to the steroids was prompt. And the major aim of this study, which we can now look at with the 52-week outcomes, was to look at the percentage of patients that at a year would be in steroid-free clinical remission on 5-ASA only. And there are various algorithms for adding additional therapies, immune modulators or anti-TNF as needed, but the primary outcome, who can get away without those agents and do well on 5-ASA. So there was a cohort of over 400 involved, like all pediatric cohorts with ulcerative colitis, extensive disease. And I think typically 33% had mild disease, so just 5-ASA, the other two-thirds requiring steroids for moderate or severe disease. This study has taught us a couple of things just about the baseline presentation of ulcerative colitis. Quite a long time ago, Athos Buzvaros and a group from NASP began 
did quite a careful analysis of features of ulcerative colitis at diagnosis that were compatible with a label of ulcerative colitis and shouldn't lead you down the track of thinking this was Crohn's disease. So trying to avoid inappropriate labeling. Now, the PROTECT study has told us what percentage of these new onset patients have these atypical findings. So you can see, for example, those who don't have a pancolitis, 26% of them had a sequel patch, therefore no reason to worry that this is a skip lesion suggestive of Crohn's colitis. And quite a unique feature of this PROTECT study, I think, it showed us that some of these atypical features were more or less common depending on the severity of the disease at presentation. So this patchiness was more common in milder disease. And I think we've all had cause at times to be a little hesitant. Was it really ulcerative colitis because there seemed to be patches of normal mucosa? But this can be a feature of mild ulcerative colitis. However, the gastritis that we know can go along with ulcerative colitis is more common with the more severe disease. In terms of longer-term outcomes, remembering the percentage of patients with mild and moderate or severe disease at the beginning, you can see there the percentages according to initial severity who are in clinical remission at week four. On the other hand, these are the percentages that had to step up to one of those other therapies, immune modulators or anti-TNF by week 12. These are the percentages that at 12 months are in remission on 5-ASA only for the different categories of severity at the beginning and finally, the percentage requiring colectomy according to initial severity. And so if we look at this again, we can see that a new patient with moderate or severe ulcerative colitis, and in this protocol, they were treated with steroids, their chances at one year of being in clinical remission without steroids on 5-ASA alone is 30%. And you can see the other data there related to likelihood of colectomy or needing to escalate therapy. An important additional predictive factor is how the patient is early on at four weeks. So if you had moderate or severe disease at the beginning, you had only a 30% chance of being in remission without steroids on only 5-ASA at a year. But if you were also in clinical remission at week four, your chances were 67%. And so the group put this into a model looking at predictors of clinical remission 
without steroids, only on 5-ASA at a year, and in that model were this clinical remission at week four as the stronger factor, but degree of activity at the beginning and whether or not you were anemic at the beginning also influencing the likelihood. And similarly, another model related to the need to step up therapy. This study had some interesting findings about baseline histology, particularly a high number of eosinophils predicting a milder course. And this is something that warrants further evaluation in other cohorts. So why is this study important? Well, I think it reiterates the prevalence of non-classical features of UC, which shouldn't lead us away from such a diagnosis. Very importantly, I think it allows us in treating patients to say to families what they can realistically expect from 5-ASA as maintenance if their initial treatment was steroids, and we can refine that prognosis based on how well they've done at week four. It points to histology as a biomarker of likely outcome, and there are many more biomarkers to come out of this study because of the different biospecimens that have been collected. And it also highlights, I think, the limitations of what we call standard therapy. Another paper to look at from 2018, which really will review all the existing evidence to date to guide our therapy of ulcerative colitis, the ambulatory patient, and those hospitalized with acute severe colitis comes from these UC guidelines uh, from the ESPGAN and ECHO group. So I'd encourage you to read those. Now, given the shortcomings of some of the standard therapies, it becomes very important to optimize biologic therapies in pediatric IBD. And to this, we look to therapeutic drug monitoring, which, as you know, was initially introduced just to assess non-response, either primarily or secondarily in patients who initially benefited. But increasingly, and I think particularly importantly in pediatrics, we are using therapeutic drug monitoring proactively to try to give the patients the best chance up front. This certainly is controversial because the prospective randomized control data in adults are not strongly supportive. We have to ask, what are optimal trough levels? optimal pre-infusion trough levels. Most of the information available is for infliximab, some for adalidumab, and just coming for the newer biologics. But I think what we have to realize is that these levels that are advocated are usually based on comparison of clinical response and remission rates across quartiles, usually in clinical trials. And as time have gone, has gone on, 
we have gradually increased what we think the target level should be in considering clinical remission, mucosal healing requiring higher levels, and some data, for example, in the treatment of perianal fistulizing disease suggesting more drug exposure is required. But I think we're still learning, even during maintenance, and there's this concept of futility level. What level is so high that there would be nothing to be gained by achieving a greater drug exposure? And we're only beginning to learn, I would say, about the levels of drug that should be attained early during the induction phases. So in the past year, we've seen a couple of pediatric studies come, just like the older adult studies, looking at levels achieved and correlating them with various outcomes, usually during maintenance therapy. This is a study in Crohn's disease, pediatric Crohn's disease from Ben Kang in South Korea, looking at the levels associated with endoscopic remission. The, you can see there with the ROC curve, however, that there's a lot of variability with some patients achieving that endpoint even with lower levels and others at higher levels not achieving it. Similarly, from the pediatric group in Leuven, Belgium, similar data suggesting optimal cutoff of just above five, but with a lot of variability. And this is a study from Whale El Matari in Canada, uh, confirming that higher levels were associated with better healing of perianal fistulae. I think the best and most innovative work really comes from Marla Dubinsky's group. And this is a study of a retrospective analysis of practices in that institution in the era where patients were just all dosed standardly compared to the current era there where they use a dashboard to predict the dosing needed. And in this analysis specifically, they looked at trough levels at week 10, and almost all the patients in these cohorts had Crohn's disease. And what they're looking at in the survival curves here, first of all, the blue side is looking at the likelihood of remaining on infliximab. And what you see there is that the patients who were on infliximab monotherapy but had a level checked early at week 10 and their maintenance dosing decided based on that were as likely to be able to stay on infliximab therapy as those who had been treated with combination therapy. And I think in pediatrics, anything that allows us to avoid combination therapy, certainly with thiopurines, is very desirable. And you'll see that 
in the dotted line there, those are the patients who were on monotherapy, but without this week 10 level to personalize their regimen and a much greater drop-off of being able to stay on infliximab. What was disappointing, however, was that, and you see in the green there, there was a benefit to combination therapy, even in that group that had a week 10 level checked and therapy personalized, there was a benefit in terms of reduction of antibody against infliximab formation, but at least these antibodies were usually low teeter and therefore not associated with loss of responsiveness, which is why I think the durability remaining on drug remains the same. So even in that analysis, the first level was done at week 10. There are very few data looking at levels during induction. But when you see what's available, and this is adult data, looking at trough levels at week two and week six, and then trying to correlate that with short-term mucosal healing at week 14, and what I want you to notice here is how high these desired levels are at this stage of induction, quite higher than we're used to targeting in maintenance. So the concept of the dashboard is to plug in all the factors that you know influence clearance of any monoclonal antibody and to personalize your therapy. This is another recent analysis of therapeutic drug monitoring or at least of pharmacokinetics with a different biologic. This is golimumab and some of the data in this population PK analysis came from the pediatric UC pursuit study, but what we learned in that study was that the planned dosing of the youngest and lightest patients really probably underdosed them. So why are these TDM studies so important? They're important because anti-TNFs are drugs with good safety records for our patients, and therefore it's important to really optimize response and particularly durability. And we have to be particularly conscious, I think, for the youngest patients. You'll notice that in the European ECHO-ESPGAN guidelines, which I mentioned earlier, they make a statement about dosing of infliximab and acute severe UC and suggest that in that context, patients should receive more intensive dosing. The paper by Rosen, which I referenced there, is a very nice summary of the factors affecting PK. It's still controversial as to whether intensification truly influences the outcomes in acute severe UC. Certainly at our center, we have felt that it does. And this is a study showing continued benefit out to the longer term. And it's noteworthy that the intensification is required initially, but then as the disease comes under control 
and the pharmacokinetics of the drug changes again, you can reduce the intensive nature of the ongoing infusions. Uh, so just winding down briefly, um, we are in an era of a lot of emerging drugs, and I think Dr. Baldizzano is going to talk about that a lot. And we have difficult choices now and coming which agents to use, either when anti-TNFs are failing or even how to position the new ones ahead or after anti-TNF. And so far, we really have to be guided only by adult data. I don't think there's much of a way around it at the moment. What we would love is biomarkers to predict response. And I just wanted to point out this one study. It is in adults. It's the group from Oxford. And they took patients from ulcerative colitis trials with infliximab or golimumab in adults, looked at responders compared to non-responders, and found that cytothine gene expression, particularly the expression of this oncostatin M, was quite a reliable predictor of non-response, higher levels correlating with non-response. So this is the sort of thing we need to know who with ulcerative colitis will not benefit from infliximab and may do better with one of the newer agents. A couple things just to highlight for you to end up. There's a lot of pediatric interest in methotrexate in Crohn's disease given our concerns about thiopurines particularly in young males and thiopurine toxicity in general. This is a meta-analysis of methotrexate studies in pediatrics. They're all retrospective, but it gives you an idea of the likelihood to induce remission or maintain remission. I'd like to point out the now initiated an ongoing European study, which is a study which randomizes high-risk patients after initial enteral nutrition or steroid therapy to receive either adalidumab or methotrexate subcutaneously as maintenance therapy. And then finally, just online a couple of days ago, I couldn't not mention this study. This is from the group in Glasgow, and it's an attempt to look at an ordinary food-based diet that replicates exclusive enteral nutrition. A very sophisticated study which uh, looks at the impact of the diet called CD-TREAT compared with exclusive enteral nutrition modulin on fecal microbiome in controls, has some animal data, and then a very pilot, very small study of CD-TREAT diet in children with Crohn's disease. But I just thought it was important to mention because many people are now looking for dietary strategies to employ alongside the large number of emerging drugs. 
So thank you for your attention. And